Hi, and welcome to F-Roll, the Fragility Podcast. Together with our guests, we explore how the force of fragility manifests across the world and in our day-to-day lives, and how we can build a more resilient future. I'm Mihaela Karste, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Paul Biska and Johan Bjurman-Bergman. And today, we are honored to be joined by Stefan Durkan. Stefan is a professor of economic policy at Oxford University, where he also directs the Center for the Study of African Economics. The author of five books and many studies, Stefan has had a distinguished career as an academic and policy advisor on economic development. His accomplishments are many, to name just a few. Between 2011 and 2017, he was chief economist of the Department of International Development, DFID, the former department in charge of UK's aid policy and spending. Between 2020 and 2022, he was the development policy advisor to successive foreign secretaries at the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. And today we will be discussing Stefan's most recent book, Gambling on Development, Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. And spoiler alert, it's fantastic. The book came out in 2022. And as of a few days ago in December 2023, it's also available as an audiobook. So go out there and listen to it. Stefan, welcome to F-World. Well, thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you. And um, first, we want to learn about you. We always uh, would like to know about our guests' background. And we're curious, why did you become an economist? Why the interest in poverty? What were some of the sort of people, places, and ideas that shaped your path? Oh, wow. You know, I, I think I first decided I wanted to work in development before I became an economist. Um, I think... You know, I'm I'm old these days, so I go back being taught like late 1970s in schools by Catholic priests who um, clearly were shaped by the 1960s because they taught us about African socialism and Ujamaa and Julius Nerere when I was 14 years old. And that's probably the memory I have best being taught that kind of uh, stuff. And then uh, and, and another priest ending up teaching us Marxism by the time I was 17. And and this there's a link with economics because there's the one thing that, I mean, there's lots of things that's still interesting in reading Marx, but this whole idea that economics is the, is the suprastructure of everything else in society. And I think that was actually, actually what, what drove me because I just thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, I was going to do economics, but always with the intention I was interested in development. So I'm curious then, what took you to the poverty angle of economics? Well, you know, it's in a way it's linked, you know, it's this kind of uh, idea of, you know, what does economics have to say about society? If you're that interesting development, you come on that that bottom end. So is that lower end in the distribution? Um, Definitely interested me. I ended up going after an undergraduate in, in, uh, in, in economics in, in uh, Belgium, in Leuven, I ended up traveling to Oxford because Amartya Sen was there. And I, that's the one I wanted to work with. And uh, yeah, it didn't work out that well because, you know, after, after a year, I got the courage to go and talk to him and say, I want to do a PhD with you. And he was extremely nice and he's such a wonderful person, a wonderful character. And at the time, so he took quite a bit of time listening to my ideas and said, look, yes, you can do a PhD working with me on the capability theory of, 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 of uh, um, and, and of welfare measurement issues. But uh, 
but then you'll have to come with me to Harvard because next week I'm going to Harvard and I'll be there. <laughs> and so, yeah, so anyway, so that didn't go that well, but it's always been that interest. I was interested in in development, but then, uh, yeah, the send, the send angle never went away, I suppose. So, in a way, it started with a mix of the 1960s and Marx, which... which for Eastern Europeans, it's always hard to believe why the West has always been so fascinated with, with that, but it's very understandable. Uh, probably a mix of Catholic social thought in, in the, in, in there as well. But a lot of your publications are about risk and risk and poverty. So can you help us understand a bit how you approach that angle and why risk and why poverty? So. So maybe to, to add to the earlier statement, I wanted to work on development. I always, I always wanted to, always was fascinated with agriculture and rural, and rural uh, issues. Um, you know, I grew up in suburbia. It's not that I come from a farming family, but um, I did try to grow my own potatoes and these things like that. And an absolute failure. And I think, you know, it's very useful to do that. And you start understanding risk, all the stuff that can go wrong with anything you do. So, so a bit of gardening, a bit of vegetable cultivation for teenagers is a very good lesson. And I suppose coming then to, at some point, first in Tanzania, you know, you're looking for, for a topic to work on, research on. You know how it is as researchers. You need to find an angle and entry point. And, you know, just once you then start looking at how rural households live, I was actually very struck at the time. We're going back a long time. Nobody was really writing about it in mainstream economics as a way of looking at issues. And um, so I got very interested in our culture and the issues of risk, of course, our cultural economists that work on it. And then... Um, I think it was Angus Deaton's writing in the early 1990s on, um, on, on, on issues to do with risk and actually how to bring this in into thinking about, about problems and how people act and behave and, and do precautionary behavior and so on. So, and then once after Tanzania, I ended up in Ethiopia um, as my first job as a postdoc, essentially, I uh, was asked to, uh, I was working here in Oxford at the Center for the Study of African Economies. And um, I didn't really want to be further in Oxford. I wanted to be based in Africa if I could. And said, yeah, there, there's these people that asked to set up a master's program in economics uh, in a country called Ethiopia that, yes, just had uh, a guerrilla group, a rebel group taking over the capital. We're talking 1992. And apparently the people in the universities are very keen um, not to be taught Marx anymore, but actually uh, they quietly had during the, the Dirk regime, which was very aligned with the Soviet Union and Eastern Germany, they had managed quietly in the evenings to keep on reading Samuelson and they felt like we want to get some proper economics now. And so I ended up with a colleague, uh, later my wife, uh, we set up a master's program there. But then once you're in Ethiopia, this is definitely still the period, you know, extreme poverty, but incredibly harsh conditions and risk is all about you. And yeah, that's that's definitely uh, still still a passion for me because it's I still think we do too much in economics as if there's certainty and we just don't think enough about carefully, you know, how do we give whether it's advice or do work or 
or even write our papers and behave, you know, what does it look like ex ante when the world is very uncertain? Exposed, we're very good to judge everybody, but ex ante, it's a pretty difficult set of decisions to take. So, yeah, it, it, it still interests me um, academically probably more than anything else. You've alluded to this a little bit. Uh, you noted how kind of the change in Ethiopia at that time was moving away from you know, the Marxist idea and more towards the open market, um, which kind of mirrored this political change, I guess, that was going on at the time. And that is also a theme that is so present in your book. But what I think is uh, is really fascinating about your book and which made me realize that uh, maybe I didn't need a master's after all, but I could have read your book instead, uh, is how you outline these trends, uh, these kind of main thoughts of development uh, at the beginning. Um, so could you uh, kind of, for our listeners, help describe these a little bit, um, and then we'll go into further contrasting these with, with how you think about it. Yeah, so look, it's... Um, if you want to organize, you know, organize economic thinking, and again, it's for me, it's always about in the end what delivers poverty, what delivers a poor country, what delivers a poor population within a country, and how mainstream economics deals with it. I, I kind of think we can probably summarize it in kind of four propositions, four ways of looking at a problem. You know, the one is the one that most people think, as economists, we think about a problem. Like, there's perfect markets, just let them work, everything will be efficient. And then, yeah, we don't really think about how then poverty or um, well, poverty and, 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 and poor outcomes to certain people follow from it. You know, it's probably this kind of, they don't work hard enough and that's why they're poor. But of course, the most basic of economics, and, you know, come back also to Amartya Sen, who was always very good at alluding to this, is, is, uh, is that, you know, efficiency is not fair because fundamentally, if the markets are perfect, poverty gets created through the initial distributions of assets. So you have a very simple view that all poverty is essentially um, poor assets to start with, you know, initial condition, initial endowments. Of course, um, and I think, you know, in my early career, I, I grew up with this, you know, this, I still remember the beginnings of uh, the mainstreaming of the kind of Joe Stiglitz ideas of market failures start from market failures and and that's the way of organizing it so so if if you see market failures around it and a lot of basic development economics uh tends to still be taught around that you know just have these imperfect markets how does poverty come about well it's of course still to do with initial endowments it never never helps uh to, to have a poor start but then you could have certain market failures that can make it worse and so it is kind of Certain market failures can exacerbate. Of course, the simplest one is credit market failures. If I go to the bank as a poor person, I won't get a loan because I don't have collateral. So I have to have assets to be able to get a loan. If I'm rich, I can have a loan. So basically, I'm making the initial income distribution worse. So poverty gets exacerbated by the market. And I think that's important. You know, markets can exacerbate poverty uh, because of their inherent uh, ability to fail. And and then maybe the last two is then put this more in a macro framework, you know, put it in a more macro growth framework. It's the same ideas of market failure. So it's the third proposition is that basically um, growth failures, low growth in, in economies come about because of market failures. And, you know, you could start with 
you know, global credit market failures. If I'm a poor country, I can't easily uh, borrow. Um, or you can go to, you know, uh, um, other Nobel Prize winners like, um, you know, Paul Romer, that it's basically, uh, if you have a set of high human capital to start with, you keep on having the externalities. Or the Krugman type of argument, once we get growth growing in a particular location, there will be externalities from settling in that same location. So you'll get all forms. If you know externalities are market failures, then, um, you know, you get that same idea of market failures, but actually leading to growth failures. And then probably the, the fourth one that goes a bit against this in some sense um, is to actually say, well, you know, maybe the problem doesn't lie in the market itself, but in the underlying institutions that could allow a market to function well. And then you are, you know, um, not a Nobel Prize winner, they're on a Simoglu, um, you know, maybe worth putting a bit of money on, on him winning it one day uh, with Jim Robinson, get the why nations fail type of argument, where I fundamentally say, no, it's the institutions that fail, that don't allow them the markets to function or don't allow really the governments to be, of the kind of that can actually help to fix the market failures, but it brings it back to the underlying institutions, and that's that's what it does. Now, you know these four propositions. Um, you know, I, I still think you know one day I should write a longer article about it because it's quite funny if one start thinking about it. It's quite a lot of Nobel prizes you can fit into into that framework, and uh, you get a lot of fairly applied economics that and policy advice stems from all these kind of ways of doing it. At the same time, I do, and, and we can come back to that, the more I think about it, it puts either the institution central, and if you don't have them, you're a bit screwed, you know, forgive my language, but basically, you know, you you start with, with uh, bad institutions and then you can read uh, why nations fail. If you don't look like, if you read a book, uh, in a way that it seems to be written, if you don't look like England uh, or its offshoots, places like America, um, then you are you are damned, and all the other places somehow or another can't get these institutions going, um, and so you get in the end, you know, OECD countries they are the ones that have their institutions sorted, and then the rest not. Now, if you look at the developing world, it doesn't fit very well for me in terms of. Is this a sufficient explanation of why we see countries taking off and others staying behind? And I suppose that's then the premise for, for, for my book. And um, um, so why don't I pause for a second? <laughs> so actually, this is exactly where I wanted to go, because I'm curious, how would you describe to us what has been going on in development in the recent decades? What are those big trends that actually these all of these hypotheses that you've just sort of outline some of them worthy of a Nobel Prize, don't fully explain. So no, that that's that that's great. And uh and it's it's um well let me try to not lose count now. Uh, so so if I start with you know probably the most striking thing is that poverty decreased rather dramatically in the world. Okay. So if and and I and I like to look at that like that. It's highly correlated and that's um you know we probably have Two thirds of the extreme of, of the number of extreme poor people now than we had in 1990. Um, at the same time, it's coinciding, and of course, for economists, not a surprise. 
it's also correlated with very fast growth in quite a lot of developing countries. You know, something like middle-income countries grew by about just under 4% per capita per year. That means, you know, 30 years later, um, that, that, that does mean uh, that they are, you know, multiples, three times as, uh, as, as rich than they were, were before or even more than that. Um, and so, you know, you get that big progress. We can now look at a location where it happened. Um, well, strikingly, it happened mainly in Asia. Um, it didn't really quite happen in Africa. So maybe the second stylized fact to emphasize is that, you know, you get an Africanization of poverty. And probably by 2030, 90% or more will be living in sub-Saharan Africa. So you, so you get that, uh, that, that issue. Um, maybe a third one, and we can come back to that later on, is that more and more of that poverty is concentrated in what I call messy places. Fragility is a part of it. Uh, so probably, you know, 40%, maybe, depending on definitions, we have endless problems with defining that. But 40, 50% of that are quite messy places already, if not more. Um, maybe the, then the fifth one is then it doesn't fit as easily that model. And why, why is that? You know, if you read Asimoglu and Robinson carefully, uh, or at least as it is written, I know they're probably more careful when you when we went to debate with this, but if you read it, it's a bit like, and it's definitely became that kind of view, is that it's all institutions. Now, if I look at these countries in Asia that made huge progress, you know, countries like China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, India also, you know, they made progress. And it's hard to describe them having these perfect institutions. They're definitely not the why nations fail perfection. Whether it's in the political institutions, some of them autocracies and not the democracies that more or less is prescribed by the inclusive institution definition that they have. Um, and it's also not, not um, as if they have, you know, perfect rule of law and all the things. There's plenty of poor economic governance, corruption, and all kinds of, of issues there as well. So it doesn't fit as easily that bill. And I think that's important. So we make progress in the world of imperfection. I suppose my, five, my fifth trend, and maybe we can come back to that later, is that, you know, this is the last 30 years. The progress was dramatic. I'm a bit more concerned about where it will go next because a lot of the progress was made by not a single recipe in the economics, but always something to do with some form of allow markets to do something, basically to give signals to prices, not, not necessarily perfect competition or perfect markets or capitalist system. And secondly, with some outward orientation. Okay, and that, 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 that was there. And so you get, get to these things. But the important thing is really linked back to these theories. The, these places were far more messy then, then it was described. Um, it definitely wasn't in a world of perfect markets, nor was it in a world where you know governments were clearly diligently fixing all the market failures in an obvious sort of way either. So there needs to be something else that helps us understand how countries get going. You know, I don't know whether I can get to Singapore or United States levels with the kind of institutions I have in Bangladesh. I, that's not my question, or indeed the institutions we have in China, but the question is really, can we take off? And, and then the theories, especially the kind of this big thing, it's all perfect institutions first before all the other things can start working. 
it doesn't seem to apply. So we need to look at somewhere else in the here and now. So in the here and now, let's just then focus a bit on the messiness. Uh, because, and I have two questions stemming from, from your sort of description of the main trends. First, can you tell us a bit more about Africa? What are the top trends or what are the main characteristics that resulted in the Africanization of poverty? And second, you know, you talk about messy countries, but generally, even in your book, the mental model of fra fragility, fragile states does not feature so prominently. So what, what are your thoughts on that? What, why, what, what is fragility? Um, what does it mean to you? Um, is it useful? Yeah. So, so first on, 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 on the African context. So first of all, you know, I'm going to use a cliche, but it's always helpful to say it. Africa is not the country. There is a huge diversity also in economic performance. You know, we have the Botswanas of the world that already for for uh, for decades. Yes, yeah, a small country, a very small population, but uh, it's been doing reasonably well. Uh, and it's but it's maybe the exception in Africa, about uh, in terms of the natural resource rich countries, because quite a few of them have natural resources. And somehow or another, you know, uh, we can come back to it. What occurs really, maybe, but something seems to be happening with the natural resources and, and, and it definitely seems to have made takeoff for prolonged periods of time much harder. Then you get, um, uh, then you get other countries that don't have the natural resources of the same kind of levels. And some of them are actually done reasonably well in recent times. East Africa is not too bad. I talk in the book about the 15 year period in Ethiopia between 2005 and 2020 when it really had very fast growth. Ghana also since about the mid-1990s, really substantial growth, recovery, and, and, and serious growth. There's others as well. You know, Senegal didn't do too badly. Cote d'Ivoire is not doing too badly now, and so on. Basically, you get diversity, but you get a group of countries, and I mentioned already natural resources are a big part of it. You get also countries like Malawi that doesn't have natural resources, but also somehow doesn't get its act together. And then you get the conflict affected places. Many of them or most of them seem to have natural resources, but again, not all of them in the recent places like Mali and, and Burkina where coups were happening and so on. So yes, I think this is what you call fragile. I think it's a euphemism. I don't like the word. Can I still continue with the podcast? I don't like the word fragile. I think it's such a euphemism to actually saying places that are a mess because the literal definition is not so helpful you know, fragile is this kind of technocratic euphemism sometimes of a place while it, it, it can't cope with shocks very well. I know you're much more subtle and you wouldn't do a podcast if you didn't want to explore it uh, further. But it seems to be this kind of catch-all world of places that are a bit messy, you know? There's some technical definitions, weak state capability. Yeah, that sounds very technocratic again, of capacitate, capacity better. Uh, the other one is then weak state legitimacy, which is, you know, if you're not a political scientist, you may forget a little bit what it means, but it gets a bit more to it. And I think I like that places where there is maybe a crisis of legitimacy, but not in a way that necessarily stops these countries from functioning, but it definitely is part of the problem related to, to the kind of growth and development. So... So yes, there's a, there are these messy places, and then you know if you look up the say the the top 
four or five places where extreme poverty will be largest by 2030. So you get, you know, top of the list there, Nigeria. Yeah, it's, you know, in its way, it's stable. You know, it, it has the resources to handle the shock, but it's definitely messy. It's definitely an issue there related to, to, to development that it's not taking place. Yes, there's fragility on the borders there as well, but why Abuja is not running its economy sensibly is not much to do with Boko Haram. It has with many other things to do. We can come back to that. Get the DRC number two, Madagascar number three. You know, Madagascar is sometimes forgotten that, uh, you know, remarkably low levels of political violence. Yes, occasionally gets in the news with a little bit of stuff, but very little political violence, you know, but incredibly poorly run. I mean, you know, shall I say controversial thing? I probably won't get a visa anymore. I think it's as close to a banana republic as I've ever seen in Africa, uh, the Madagascar. You know, I'm very, very strong. It's total capture by a small group of people, and it's rather remarkable. But then there is Malawi, peaceful country, you know, um, I think political violence has caused in one casualty, I think, over in its 40 years history. There was with uh, some violence after the last ele two elections ago. Um, but then, um, yeah, very peaceful place, but nothing happening in the economy and society. So it's too easy to say it's all it's all fragile. But are they messy? Oh, absolutely. So so by lack of a better word, I tend to use the word messy because it's it's uh, something or another that um, those, the powers that be, don't get their act together and progress is not made in the country. Fragility is part of it, um, but uh, it's all such a euphemism as far as I'm concerned. Well, just to, to uh, follow up on that, do you think, though, that this is a, a broader problem with mental models in the sense that fragility aims to capture this messiness and maybe there's an implicit understanding of the people who use between the people who use this term, that this is what this means. But because it's it's a model, ultimately it's it's almost like an image frozen in time, where you where, where you don't capture the fluidity of what's going on on the on the ground. No, now now you're making, of course, you make well, you always make a lot of sense, but you make a really good point um uh here. And it's it's of course it is to do with that kind of um you know, it's also this problem when terms arise. At first, they capture the imagination and then they get stale. Okay. And and I'm not trying to propose that we have a new category called messy places. You know, it's, I'm not trying to say it. Uh, absolutely not. And but the, but the problem is that fragility inherently will involve imprecision here. You know, it's extremely hard. And you know well enough, endless organizations bring out these fragile states index. I remember working at uh, in the UK government. We, we of course, couldn't... We were committed um, to spend, I think, 30% of our money in fragile states. That was the Treasury, basically instructed us at the time of the budget, 30% of our money should be spent in fragile states. And then the glorious thing was that because every a, a country would get really upset if we called them fragile, let alone if we call them messy. So we couldn't publish the list. So, so if you think in terms of an accountability system, that was quite a complicated thing. And that's, of course, the thing. Most, most organizations that say we are committed to work in fragile states, you can't really publish this anyway. So, so it's, a, it's, 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 an, it's indeed maybe an aggregation. It's a problem here of an aggregation where probably I'm one of these people who said, okay, 
if the aggregation makes it vaguer rather than more precise, then I would prefer to actually disaggregate it again and actually go, go a bit clearer. So it's, a, you know, the analogy in poverty is that I'm not the biggest fan in these kind of multidimensional poverty indexes because I don't know anymore what to do with it because everything is together. I can't actually do an, an intervention or a policy that says this is what I will target for a particular level of the MPI, the multidimensional uh, multi poverty index. It's a bit the same thing. You know, fragility within its particular context, it will have to be uh, be different. So it's a bit of Tolstoy here, you know, all uh, unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And I think, you know, messy places are messy in their own way. So let's not be too hung up on the aggregation uh, kind of uh, way of doing it, because we're not going to do that much sensible stuff if we do that. But, you know, yeah, no, I, I think we fully subscribe to to this uh, Tolstoyan approach to uh, to to messiness in the state level. I think we've, we it's it's been a recurring quote on an, on the podcast. But if if we look then at the idiosyncrasies, let's say, of each of these countries that have messiness or fragility in common, or or for that matter, those that that do not. Um, you know, and particularly some of these African countries, uh, you have you have two key concepts in your book. You talk about the elite in these countries, which you know is this uh, uh, group of, of people across society um, that that are able to make various decisions, and then they somehow come to an agreement, uh, a bargain of some kind, and and the the holy grail of the bargains is the development bargain, where they're moving in a direction where you know it also benefits the non-elite but can you help us delve in a little bit more into these concepts who is the elite where you know how do we spot them uh, no but jokes aside uh, kind of how do we define the elites uh, and how do we how do you define the the development bargain as as opposed to just an elite bargain in a country um, and and what and why is this kind of the the outcome that we should strive towards Okay, so, so let's start with the elites. Okay, so there is that there are academic articles trying to define elites. Okay, so it's it's not always that easy. The way I want to do it is kind of a working definition, a kind of a way of working with it. And for me, these are the groups that have one way or another power or influence on the kind of the, the, the direction of, of, of a country. The way what what's what's going on in the country, um, and one key part of it will be one key key group, of course, will be a political class. It's an interesting thing, not necessarily the ones who make decisions, but also the ones who can stop decisions, can create chaos, can uh, you know, opposition politicians are a big part actually of of the way the elite the elite plays in a, in a society. Um, you know, you have military, obviously, we just come back from Pakistan, you know, took a while, but these days, military are quite, they haven't quite done a coup. That's not at all what the world looks like there in Pakistan, but they've reasserted their influence very strongly. And so even in economic decision making, you know, they come to the foreground, but they've since independence, since the, since the creation of the state of Pakistan, being part of that uh, elite bargain. Of that that elite actually, and then the there is the um, you know there's obviously the business elite as well, 
but it's also civil society because they, you know, they can shape, they can again keep it together, keep uh, undermine it. There's academics, journalists, the storytellers, they will matter as well. And so anyway, you have groups with power and influence. You know, if I go to Nigeria, I have to include some traditional leaders that have definitely a big brokerage role, religious leaders, they come in. Okay, so we can, the, the way I usually would think about it when people push me like you, you are doing a little bit and being precise about it is that think of it more concentric circles. You know, there's group groups, you know, not everybody in society, even in our uh, democratic society, like I'm, I'm talking to you from the UK, um, you know, some are more equal than others. Okay, so the Aurelian quote definitely applies here. Um, even in the UK, you know, you're in the inner circle of decision making or you may have some influence uh, at one way or another. So there is that bit of that first one. And then the concept I want to use is, and that's maybe the thing that I think is more sometimes useful than, you know, we were talking about uh, people talking about fragility and, and trying to define the capability or the performance of a government. Or the, it's actually to say, well, what is the nature of the implicit deal that exists between these leading groups? And I say the word implicit, you know, the the the, the elite bargain, uh, you know, the moment of striking the elite bargain, it will not be televised. You know, it's not a very public moment. There is something there happening in society that is happening. You know, economic historians like Douglas North implicitly use these terms to saying, look, this is how states emerge as well. You know, when, when uh, in the first instance, these kind of implicit deals are deals about basic peace and stability. You know, we're not going to just fight each other. We're going to actually um, have, a, have an implicit deal with each other. And so I, like, I find it very helpful to ask in every country all these messy places where we're implicitly talking about these, including all these fragile places, to actually say, well, what's the nature of the deal here? You know, is there, first of all, a deal? Is there a deal? How stable is that? How fragmented is the elite? Are they actually coming together? You know, conflict is always clearly a fragmentation of an elite um you know you and and is there some form of a, of a deal you know and and it goes back to this this underlying concept of max weber as well that that it's that fundamentally a state is in the first instance a deal about you know who can use violence the legitimate use of violence so it's basically a deal that's saying look we are now a coalition that now will deci decide we are the ones that are allowed to, to decide what peace and stability looks like, you know, and that means it's a coalition. It's not everybody in the elite, um, but we'll, we'll, have, we'll have this coalition. And then fundamentally, when it brings back to what's happening in societies, it's, it's typically not just a political deal. It's also a deal about how resources are being controlled, who has access to the state, who has access to natural resources, who, and how are they being distributed? Who can do what activities and so on? So it's a bit like, you know, they are implicitly at every moment in time writing the rules of the game. Okay. And so, so that's, that's in the way where we're, where we're getting at. And I like to look at every society. Well, what's the nature of, what's the nature of the bargain here between powerful groups? Okay. And can come back to that, what it may mean in, in, in fragile places and so on. For me, the key concept is, is that, so, so the key concept is really this elite bargain, you know, and there's plenty of political scientists that one way or another talk about it. 
A variation of it could be political settlements theory as well. There is somehow you need to understand what that deal is between these between powerful groups. How does growth and development come about? Well, this deal doesn't have to be perfect. You know, there may be some be some can be more equal than others. You know, there can be certain things, but within that elite bargain, there is enough attention to actually that growing the pie and having a degree of inclusion is important enough for us. Why am I saying that? Because there could be another uh, kind of elite bargain. You know, if I go to take one uh, African country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, I, but the jury is a bit out on Chesikedi, but definitely the two Kabilas and Mobutu Sesaseke, they were kleptocrats, you know, and basically, if you belong to the state, you got licensed to steal. That's not an elite bargain, for um for for growth you know that's not a deal no it's simply the deal if i'm in in the states it's 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 actually in the way he operated it mobutu sesaseko operated it it's not even uh a zero sum game it's like a negative sum game you know i i i i steal so much that i create so much instability and chaos that there's no one ever will try to uh, uh set up accumulate anything or create an asset and so you've got a whole business, quite a thriving business community, essentially destroyed in the process. So kleptocracy. You could also have, you know, Malawi. Look at the elite bargain in Malawi. I would say, well, that's a political class that um, tends to have a very short term in tenure. Maybe it's endogenous here, but short term in tenure, uh, in tenure in government, you know, about 60 or 70 percent of MPs get kicked out every election. So, you know, that means your horizon is pretty short as a as a as an um, politician. And definitely the deal is there. Let's actually, as much as we can, line our pockets in a short period of time. And that's all we do. Uh, we don't see any growth. Peaceful country. But no, somehow or another, horizon is very short and nothing really ever gets done. And occasionally, uh, you know, occasionally we, we invite some kind of um, protagonist that loves uh, silver bullets like a Jeff Sachs with fertilizer subsidies. You invite them happily in because they love it. It's a brief moment of hooray. And ever since fiscal crisis have, are caused by the fact that they can't unwind this great silver bullet that um, Jeff Sachs introduced around 2000. So, you know, you, 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 get, uh, you, you, you get other societies. So, but you can get elite deals that are developmental. And I think what is very striking that places like Bangladesh or Indonesia or China are all in very different way. Say Bangladesh, with a, where during a period that democracy functions very well, definitely changing how they were running the country, also how the elite was behaving in general um, from a period in the 1970s, a lot of conflict and civil war and whatever, they actually, civil war, uh, sorry, in the war of independence, uh, I should be more precise, war of independence uh, followed by uh, a famine and a lot of political violence, that's the better term. Um, you know, you end up in somewhere in the 1980s. Yes, there's still vicious rivalry between the two political families, but actually implicitly an agreement on that actually growth and development is something that really should be pursued and actually aligning the incentives in all they do, basically meaning they're not all the time just attacking each other on economic policies and undermine fundamentally the growth progress that's being made. 
And so, you know, you've got, what is it, 20 years or more now, 6% growth per year and, and doing this from a very fragile place. And I think Bangladesh features on most fragile countries' lists, actually finding an implicit elite bargain to actually doing um, substantially better and, and reducing poverty dramatically and so on. So anyway, so that's the kind of a concept that I find more useful to look at the nature of that messiness, to look a bit like what's the implicit deal, what holds the formation or the emergence of a development bargain, an elite bargain focused on development and growth, what holds it back, and 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 look at it like that rather than categorize them uh, with some, you know, certain a characteristic like weak state capability that so much invites a technocratic solution, which won't help. And you know, endless technical assistance to Malawi never helped. It's a fascinating moment I had once talking to the vice president and uh, he at some point that the, the, the conversation came to corruption, says, yeah, corruption is a real problem in our administration. We really need to change it. Um, yes. And to do that, we need a lot of technical assistance. You know, technical assistance is going to change uh, corruption in the country. And I, yeah, I don't think another UNDP workshop will help here. But that's um, that's where we are. Yeah. Okay, Stefan. So you just talked about elites and the development bargain, and I'm curious how the two of them relate to the gambling. Where's the gambling in this whole thing? Because the title of your book, right? It's gambling on development. So can you walk us through that? Absolutely. Um, so the way to think about every elite bargain, you know. Two elements. It's a bit of an implicit deal, a bargain, and it's um, something to do with the elites. Now, one of the key characteristics of, of being an elite, and this is why I don't call it the people's bargain or whatever, it's um, elites have power, and they have power for change and power to stop change. And one of the main characteristics, I think, which in whatever country I'm based in, Elites like the status quo. Or if there's change, they like to be in control of the change. And um, the status quo is very comfortable, while growth and development are usually quite disruptive. Anything we know about economic development is that it typically involves sectoral changes. Certain firms will be more successful than others. Certain uh, new professions will start earning more and others will do less. Um, basically, capital in certain sectors will not have as high a return and may have to adjust and adapt and whatever. And so basically it comes down to is that change in economy usually creates or changes the composition and the structures of elites. Um, we, we've seen it definitely with you know, think of in uh, in the world and in the US with the tech industry. These are lots of new players that suddenly have enormous power, including over political political uh, outcomes. Also, politically, development is quite scary for the elite. In fact, most of the time we see political change. You know, the emergence of new groups that get the vote historically in in England. It's usually a response of somehow pressures. And somehow those in power thinking, okay, if I give them that, I can handle it. I can stay in power. You know, the aristocrats giving more uh, more rights to certain groups. 
But actually, history tells us that usually you lose your position over time. Not entirely, and some can survive, but there's plenty of aristocrats that actually are not as wealthy anymore than, or as powerful than they used to be, similarly with business families and so on. In fact, you know, there is this nice NBR paper. I forget actually the authors because it's only the title that always uh, uh, stuck in my memory is Democracy by Mistake. You know, it's basically leading groups extending the, the, the franchise, largely thinking we can control it. Uh, it's not because they suddenly thought democracy is this great thing. No, no, we can handle it. And so most change, whether it's developmental, um, you know, creates new pressures, new expectations, new aspirations for people. So push pressures there. Uh, and at the same time in the economic space, you know, new new groups will emerge, become powerful, become rich and change it. So, you know, actually, I'm surprised how many elites have gambled on growth. Um, maybe, you know, they like risk or they just didn't have good foresight, but they, they clearly because, you know, and that's a bit what a gamble is, because positions can get lost through these processes of change. And in fact, I go a little bit further, you know, most of the time, you know, it's not like one moment of a gamble and then we never look back. Just just think of even, even you know, the Indonesias, you know, you had a gamble of Suharto probably in the 1970s, 1980s, growth got, got going and so on. But in the end, he lost power in 97 after the Asian crisis, you know. It also catches up there. So all these places, they needed to renew this and at some point it can go wrong. In China, it's not as if they didn't look back since 1978. There was a whole process and sequence of new reforms and you knew, you feel very strongly. Now they are in this moment, they have to renew this elite bargain. Certain people are in, certain people are out in the Communist Party in powerful positions because they need to keep control of the next phase of, of progress. So in all these places, there is this, this, this moments needed to reconfigure and it's always risky and, and, and elites try to control it. And, um, yeah. And so, so it means also I can understand why in Nigeria, where the entire elite bargain is fundamentally still around who controls the oil rents, more than 90% of the exports is oil. That's how you control, you know, the, the 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 foreign exchange to control the rents to the government as well. I can very well understand why these probably few ten thousand of people, maybe less, maybe more, absolutely don't really want to to change that much, you know. And and occasionally, a few things need to be changed because there's a big fiscal crisis. But fundamentally, the elite bargain is so around. You know, who controls the rents and who is allowed to, to take the benefit from it. And it comes with natural resources. You know, the incentives for change are very limited because you don't even have to grow the economy a little bit to make money because you can just get it from the diamonds or get it from the from the oil, which again makes Botswana surprising and, and makes it understand that actually the resource curse is not simply an economic phenomenon of incentives in the economy, but it's such a political economy uh, issue, because why would I do anything else? Because I can have a great life controlling uh, the, the bits of natural resources we have. So you mentioned at the beginning that one of the attractions of Marx for you is the economic superstructure. Sorry, I got stuck on that. Uh, 
but then you, and you explain sort of the, the the fact that elites like the status quo they want to be in charge now to gamble to go back to Mihaela's question to to gamble on development they have to give something up and and try to and in the hope that they will get something better or at least maintain their current status so one very interesting thing that they might have to give up you have a chapter on china you talk about the fact that ideology you know the, the pragmatists won and the ideologues kind of lost and this seems to be a game that is always being played uh between purists um and pragmatists and so how do you see that game being played in other places or maybe today even in china um and and ultimately uh, what sort of values or let's say non-material things drive elites yeah so look the, for an elite to stay in power they need to have some sort of legitimacy you know <laughs> not going to dwell on marx that much but uh but you know the masses the proletariats you know they will exercise exercise some uh, some some pressure you know it's there you know there is um you know the, the the pressure will be there legitimacy is an important driving factor because legitimacy um create if if you don't have it it creates you know instability indeed it's in the common definition of fragility legitimacy is often one term that is or limited legitimacy is a term that is used so so there is something there. So I, I see for a lot of players that have played the kind of gamble on development route, seeking legitimacy was a big part of it. Okay, so if you think of Melisenawi in Ethiopia, okay, so what do we need to know about Melisenawi in Ethiopia? Well, he was that rebel leader that, that had marched into Addis Ababa in 91. Uh, and then was in power until he died, actually rather young, um, um, uh, just over a decade ago. Um, but you know, he was um, he was someone who came to power. I was already going to tempted to say he was an Alban he, he he was an admirer of Albanian socialism or Marxism, which is not a good example to follow. And fortunately, the CIA talked him out of it even by the time he got got into power. So he was suddenly much more aligned with, with, with some broader uh, ec economic policies that were a little bit less crazy. But the problem for someone like Mellis was that he uh, was the leader of the Tigrayans, of the Tigrayan Liberation uh, Front, which is 6% of the population. So there's a leader comes to power, has absolute military power, controls the country, controls the coalition that he formed, with some other ethnic partners, but ultimately everybody knew the Tigrayans were in charge. Um, very limited legitimacy. He tried to get legitimacy actually in 2005 through elections, um, which about a day when the results, they were going to be very transparent and the results started coming in and they had lost all the urban areas. So quickly the results were taken down and a few weeks later, new results were published where they won all the, the uh, all the elections. But clearly, legitimacy through the ballot box wasn't there, and so he chose actually kind of development, a bit like Deng Xiaoping's style, legitimacy through growth and development. And not that Melos was ever a dogmatist in the economy once he got to power; it became a very big driving force for actually doing that gamble, 
And arguably that gamble is the same gamble that in the end, by the growth it created, created aspirations and expectations for other groups. And you could argue undermined in the end that regime and, and it uh, changed to the current Prime Minister Abbey in 2018. But, you know, you, you get these pressures were there, but it was seeking legitimacy. So, so the, so, you know, the, it was um, pragmatic in the sense that they were going to do growth, you know, at, at all costs and very much a bit like in the Communist Party of China, Deng Xiaoping saying, look, we need to have legitimacy again and as a way of, of, uh, of obtaining, um, well, of, of, of keeping power in, in, in China. So it's interesting that you asked about, about, about China in that respect, is that, you know, the, of course, in the Mao, it was dogma entirely, and dogma was far more important. Um, you know, it definitely showed how his version of Marxism didn't get you very far to grow the economy. Um, the pragmatism definitely prevailed under Deng Xiaoping because they, for them it was more important to keep power of the Communist Party and they felt like growth would be a legitimizing factor because, you know, we can have a state, we can, uh, and food security as well was always important and it in the end delivered a very different society. It's a very interesting thing in the current environment is that President Xi, um, definitely some commentators would suggest this is back to a form of dogma, um, partly for exactly the same problems that I was describing earlier, you know. Growth creates all kinds of new power players, you know. You've got all these entrepreneurs that started getting very powerful, that uh, you've got all these uh, also across the economy big players and also, of course, more pretenders between the politics because... It became, um, you know, there was definitely aspiration growing also around a, a lot of uh, other groups in, in that society. And so anyway, going back to ideology, because it's safer, it's easier to control. And it's quite interesting that clearly wanting to give up some growth for more control is clearly bringing down that gamble a bit and playing it a bit safer. You know, low growth at 5%, for most countries of the world, they would still be pretty pleased with it. But it definitely is something like, you know, we're not going to do growth at all costs, but we're going to set incentives, again, much more around the dogma, around the ideology, and around the narratives we tell uh, to the population of why that matters. So... We mentioned a lot of different countries with different political systems and different backgrounds of natural resource endowments. So going back to what, sort of what drives the elites closer or further away from a development bargain, is there a role for natural resources? Is there a role for the political system? How do you think about that? Yeah. So the natural resources, in a way, it's quite simple. It will make it always a bit harder. You know, the incentives for the status quo are just stronger. You know, why would I change if I can, you know, just do redistributive politics, I, I control the assets and distribute it. Beyond, of course, at some point, pressures will come and aspirations may rise and so on. So the same forces may be there. But natural resources definitely makes it makes it harder. Can I actually mention something that often correctly people criticize me somewhat for is that, you know, history matters too. You know, in some sense, and this is like things like colonialism and so on, we should not dismiss it as a factor. Um, you know, some countries were 
structures are so disrupted, where borders are so badly drawn that a coalition is really hard to get. Of course, it will make it harder. What I don't want to do is then to say there's no single country ever that can emerge from that. I mean, you do have countries, including in Africa, that actually do considerably better, even though their borders are also um, not not the the um, or their borders are also drawn by colonial powers in a rather random way. But these things will make it harder. Okay. At the same time, agency will still matter. But if I, I usually have this rule of thumb, like 50% is history, 50% is agency of the elites today. Actually, it's not just me that said it. It was uh, Leonard Wonshokong basing on actually on some research papers by quite literal interpretation of an R squared in an Asimogli Robinson paper. But anyway, but 50% is history. Um, you know, there will be countries where it's 60% or 70%, you know, where it just makes it just much harder to get a deal. And I think that comes a bit closer again to that. Why is it a bit harder in Africa than it may have been in, in some uh, Southeast Asian countries, for example, with borders that are more historical and so on. Um, political systems, that's a really tricky one. You know, there is a there is some quite a bit of research and, you know, Tim Besley has a paper, an old paper now. But essentially... When you look at the data in terms of economic performance, on average, amongst uh, low-income and low-middle-income countries, autocracies and democracies do equally well. On average, they're the same. The thing with autocracies is that there is a bit more variance. So some of the best performers uh, are actually uh, autocracies and some of the worst performers are autocracies. And again, you know, in the same way that you can think of, you know, what does democracy do, creates something that, you know, if you get to an elite bargain, and if it's, that is, that is growth oriented, you know, the Malawi one is a democratic elite bargain that is not growth oriented. Ghana, maybe until recently, it's a bit of a wobble now, but fundamentally it's a growth oriented one, or Bangladesh was a democratic system growth oriented. You know, it creates a form of checks and balance, you know, if you then get a crazy ideologue that goes to do something really extreme, you know, in Argentina, we may well have a new president in four years. OK, so if he if he's going to do what he that uh, Millet is going to do, then then there is a correction there in the system. OK, and so, yes, you get a lot of political turnover. It will make the mean lower, but uh, but it helps. But let's not forget that Mobutu Seseko Kabila were autocrats, just as Deng Xiaoping was an autocrat, or at least a limited autocracy is maybe not the right description of China, but definitely a small, a relatively small group of people controlling the, the political system. And so that's what you get. You know, you get the Kabilas, you get the Deng Xiaoping. So it makes me still quite glad that I'm living in a democratic country because that's the one problem with autocrats. You can't pick them. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, you met yeah, sorry, Stefan. It's uh, uh, it's a little choppy in the connection, so I'm, I didn't mean to cut you off. But you mentioned earlier how uh, another form of elite, so uh, the CIA, gave uh, Melazinawi a, a bit of a talking to in terms of uh, the Albanian flavor of Marxism, um, and and you know that conversation is surely not the only one that's happened between decision makers or influencers in Western elites and, you know, more recently Chinese elites with leaders of, of, of you know, developing countries or countries that are 
that uh, yet have to kind of achieve this takeoff growth. Um, so what do you think is the role in achieving this takeoff growth in 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 kind of uh, catalyzing this elite, uh, the, the development bargains in developing in developing countries uh, for Western or Chinese uh, elites? And how do you think that has changed in a in a in a world where we've moved from more of a unipolar to a multipolar world? If if you subscribe subscribe to that, um, and also where more recently we're seeing a less equal or a more selective application of a lot of global rules uh, when it comes to to some high profile conflicts. Yeah. Um, okay. So. So, so maybe the first part is, and and you know the, and and it's definitely. Some commentators, I think, have correctly, somewhat criticized my book by, by not talking enough about, you know, the the global elite players or other powers that actually shape, elite bargains in countries. Okay, so, I, I'm first going to be slightly defensive and saying, look, I did it on purpose. Because, you know, there is agency. There is agency still of the leadership. And and sometimes when we put it, every, all the problems are in the kind of global political economy and nothing to do with the countries. Then actually you do some really unfair things because then you end up treating, say, Bangladesh and Pakistan in exactly the same way. Where I fundamentally say none of the one country is being much more developmental and growth oriented than another one. And you have to give credit to the elites in these countries to do it. So you can't just say they're all the same. But there is a big but here. Um, so global elites play a role. There is agency, but it's it's at times you know a bit more restrictive than, than we would want it to be. Um, it's also that you know, global elites then think think of the role, say, the US, France, and a little bit of Belgium played in shaping the Mobutu Seseko equilibrium in the 1970s, 80s. Um, you know, we we liked global elite players and global and, and countries and powerful groups like to, to to shape it in very particular ways. Yeah. And um leaving little agency for change because then it gets all very stabilized. And that's maybe the important part of it is that, you know, and it's a podcast of fragility. A lot of these elite bargains with limited legitimacy, you know, that by their nature, a little bit more unstable equilibrium. You know, when it's by the nature of fragility, we're talking a lot about un unstable equilibrium. The last thing you want is an outsider making quite a bad equilibrium stable. Uh, it definitely was brought home to me. I spent a bit of time in Francophone Africa, uh, in Niger, actually, uh, as well in Senegal, uh, Niger before the uh, before the coup. And, you know, it's probably brought was brought home more there than it's ever, ever realized how it was, is that, you know, this kind of implicit pact for stability without growth that that foreign nations uh, try to achieve in some of these places. Yeah, um, You could say it's also to do with natural resources. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I mean, Niger was more than just the uranium. Um, but, 
it has this kind of very strange sense of, you know, a global elite or or particular countries or you know um, post-colonial structures to trying to actually keep them just stable enough for their purposes and actually not allowing growth because it would be destabilizing and uh, and, and and not quite get, getting us very far. It's there. Having said that, again, you know, I'm writing the book a bit about Sierra Leone. And one of the things whenever I spend time in Sierra Leone is always thinking, gosh, this kind of the the main political parties, the elite players, the businesses that support them, you know, they get the foreign direct investors they deserve. You know, their agency is there and they love making awful deals with very awful natural resource exploiters. And it's not simply, you know, it's it's an equilibrium as well that local elites can also then look out for very dodgy players. It is definitely something in the DRC still the case. Get some dodgy investors there. So on China and the US, I I actually don't subscribe that it's that when especially it comes to the business interest that it's all simply directed. You know, China is a very decentralized place, surprisingly, on these matters. But um you know, you get extremely good Chinese investors. You get some really dodgy ones, and they know where to find them. You know, and 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 they will they will move to the places where it where where it, where 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 it fits their 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 particular models. So yeah, but anyway, so the there is this issue there with 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 global elites, and and it's something. Um, you know, the second part of your question, I'm actually really worried about it because you know I was referring to say Zaire, the the Congo of the 1970s, 80s under Mobutu Sese Seko. That was the Cold War. And, you know, the the games were being played with strong support by the by European countries, by, by the United States, and it was all Cold War. Cold War is a terrible time for development. It was a really dreadful thing. We don't talk really uh, any success stories there. It, it had to actually wait until... Till the Cold War was over before we started seeing some of these, including some of the African countries, really systematically. Okay, Botswana was an exception, but to actually start beginning to see them do a bit better. And so in the multipolar world, it concerns me because are we again going to encourage much more, not a simple, a simpler globalization game that, yeah, not, not, not perfectly... Uh, fair level, level level playing field or whatever, but that definitely had a lot of uh, good outcomes for quite a lot of countries. You know, Bangladesh could not have succeeded in its takeoff without having access to markets and um, and basically the kind of globalization patterns that we had seen. But uh, you know, if you go to a multipolar world, and that becomes the incentive again. I'm very, I'm very worried about it. Um, I worry about uh, China, not in any kind of new sort of way, but you know, it it's it's always done an element of its natural interest to do with natural resources. You know, I'm definitely not a basher of of all Chinese investment. There's a lot of pretty good Chinese investment, and I tend to think it's good that there was a choice. But in a more multipolar world where you create incentives to be much more selective and protective your, of your supply chains, you know, you know, they're also not going to, well, you're not going to expect them to be more benign. Let's put it like this. 
Um, and the same if we do the same game, it's not going to be helpful for development. If if G7 countries are going to use, say, the power in the IMF to reintroduce forms of political conditionalities and whatever, it would all be a bit scary. You know, we, we it took us a long time to get a bit less of that and to get to get back to that would be uh, would be bad. And it's because in the end, you know, if we if we like our countries to be stable over and above uh, stable in the sense that they can be our partners over and above them to be actually growing, then um, we go back to, yeah, lots of stagnation and, and very limited opportunities for, for a lot of countries. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned to, about, about that, not least because it then tends to encourage them particular regimes um, support direct support for, uh, for for certain types of regimes, and so on and so on. And you know, we just have to look at the Sahel uh, and and the West African countries. You know, you would take a long time to try to convince me that a systematic French and, Un and United States policy supportive of the French politics, of the way it would be dealing with it, is not partly responsible. For some of the stagnation we've seen in that region, and in the end, the kind of loss of legitimacy um, and the love of coups that seems to be developing there. You know, it's um, yeah, stability is, seems great for a while, but it's it sows the seeds of the instability in the future because stability is also stagnation and limited legitimacy. So it seems to me that. What you've just described is we've had the calm before the storm. So we had, you know, a storm and then a period of calm. And now we're, we're heading back into a storm in terms of development. But you've, we've also brought up, Johan brought up this big topic of the West and of global elites. And I actually have a question for you that you did not cover in your book. And I'm going to put you on the spot. And it's whether or not in the West, we still have a development bargain or if we because we, we had one, right, to jumpstart our own growth and development. And are the elite bargains we have in the West today still development bargains? If not, what are they and how will it impact what we're trying to do, right, to jumpstart developing countries? So, okay, so, um, so, 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 so maybe first take a step back and, and you alluded to it. And, you know, and I think it's why I like this, uh, the the idea of a kind of an implicit deal for for growth and development as a concept is that it's it's a helpful way of remembering that you know Western countries may well have at various moments in time European countries the US and so on get these development bargains and also the renewal of it. I think in the US, it's actually the most striking that it probably goes towards the New Deal, that actually this idea that that um, elites and including also the government has a role to play to actually set incentives that actually there is, a, there is something broader than just unbridled capitalism and uncontrolled capitalism, that there is at least something that actually there's a role to be played there. And, um, you know, if we if we look at um, what this and, and I talk a little bit in the book about Sweden actually, um, but it's definitely this kind of striking thing that you can go back to writings 
well before the Second World War, in fact, even before the First World War, where there is this kind of development, this kind of emergence of a form of consensus between big elite players that certain things are right to be pursued by, by, by the state. And this kind of, you know, the Nordic countries may well have invented the development bargain of that kind of stronger variety that we, that we still uh, still see. And so, so we had it. And, you know, think of our own politics. I don't think we've entirely lost it. In most countries in the West, elections are still fought around, you know, promises that is to do with, you know, uh, with with access, with progress, with with development, with growth, and yeah, you know, sometimes it's a more a bigger program promise on the growth and a bit more unbridled. In other places, it's to do with, but but elections are won around standards of living, about broader broader elements, and so it's still somehow there. But it is an interesting thing whether we have reached this kind of rupture point. You know, look, I'm talking to you from the UK. Brexit is a fascinating example because, first of all, it was totally unexpected by the, in, in some sense, by the, the key elite players. I remember I was a civil servant at the time, 10 days before the referendum. I remember being in number 10, you know, and talking to one of the, call it one of the assistants, private secretaries, we call them, uh, of, of uh, David Cameron. He said, oh, it's all chaos here because suddenly the polls are suggesting we may well lose. You know, and uh, that they that never contemplated that they 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 would lose, um, and and what's interesting is that it actually made the 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 historical elite bargain much more fragile, meaning that the development bargain became much harder. And why do I say that? Is that you know you had across business somewhere pro somewhere against within political parties somewhere before Brexit and some against, within intellectual centers, there I say most were against it, but quite there were definitely also voices there there as well. You know, even in the civil service, yes, maybe most of them were against the Brexit idea, but there were some as well, you know, and you got it actually across groups that formed big powerful groups it was a break line and it actually created fragmentation and in fact we're still living through that in the uk an element of fragmentation of an elite you know um god forbid what it means in argentina with a kind of flip-flopping they can have in their electoral processes as well but somehow that in the lying deal is gone and it's really interesting because it it and it's still quite interesting because it was a promised salt on a betterment in the economics terms. It was still around development and growth, but actually, you know, with with clearly much more flimsy, that created definitely a, 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 fragment, a fracturing of, of of the kind of deal. So yes, so I think there are there are breakpoints uh, all the time, and. Um, I think the most important bit on the Western countries, though, is to think about, you know, it's it's a bit like trying to think of an equilibria that is always a little bit unstable or forces make it a little bit unstable. So that actually needs to be renewed, you know, and 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 one of the things that I that I um want to do more of, partly because I've been encouraged to do it, look at Latin America a bit more where people were quite taken by some of these ideas. 
but also this idea that, you know, you may have had your early takeoff, but then somehow you need to renew these elite bargains. You need to find a way of reconfiguring. And I think we are definitely in one of these moments where we need to reconfigure what what uh, what an elite bargain around development will look like, including because of climate change, what model do we want? You know, you get people that are really extreme and want to talk about degrowth and other people want to do just simply, oh, well, it's growth with a little bit of technology change and everything will be fine. Actually, you know, it hasn't settled what that model could, could be like. And, uh, you know, given to, 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 to be, you know, to, to, to be able to do to have that growth. Now, what does it mean um, in, in, in other contexts? You know, the globalization part, of course, was a big part of the progress. And I think this is also where there's been a, a deep break, where, um, you know, this whole idea that um, maybe certain groups could temporarily lose, you know, that the economists like to say from a liberalized trade, you may well have a group that can lose for a bit, but as long as they're mobile and get on their bikes, they can get a job in another sector that can keep from growing. You know, of course, there's much less mobility in our own societies, including between sectors and so on, so that you do get that sense. And let's say, you know, the jury's maybe still a little bit out uh, uh, around whether these globalizing forces and indeed China and so on affected U.S. jobs. But in any case, the narratives is very strong that actually certain groups are losing. So there is no more deal around the kind of growth we want and the kind of economic pursuit of economic policies that, that we want to see. That one, of course, is hugely damaging for the developing world. Because if we know anything about, you know, uh, how countries have progressed is to be able to be to some extent outward oriented and being able for the for the laggard countries to use their uh, competitive advantage in some form of costs, typically in labor, but maybe in other things as well, to actually um, to, su to supply the world. So these forces of globalization that are being repressed, partly with maybe partly true, but also partly made up narratives around the damage it has done, um, yeah, it's definitely not helping the developing world. And, and uh, you know, it will make it harder for the laggards now, the, the African countries, to actually make progress. And it's definitely, for me, a concern because, you know, that wave, you know, even if, even if you were to have, say, I don't know, um, Uganda coming out with a strong developmental bargain, it's not so self-evident how it can actually do that growth. It can definitely do better than it's doing at the moment, but to actually get somehow this kind of really large growth numbers that some Asian countries have been able to achieve until recently or even today, it will be hard for a latecomer to do that. And uh, and I think it has a lot to do with that, uh, with, with, with the stopping of globalization. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's, that, that, that concerns me. And, you know, and the West is complicit in it in terms of, um, you know, closing the door to some extent and creating the incentives not to engage this. Yeah, partly as a response to certain multipolarities, some true and some imagined. 
So we, we definitely want to ask you about what development bargains actually mean for the way we do aid and, and development and, and including how international organizations uh, do it. Uh, but one more question just on the on elites themselves. What is your advice then for citizens? We talk a lot about elites. What about non-elites? Because, um, you know, you just mentioned the need to renew the development bargain. But that can mean, you know, if there's resistance, that can mean organize a new party, um, run for election. It could also mean, you know, get a bazooka and start a rebel group. Uh, so so what's your advice for for the citizens? So, well, so... so it's 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 in some sense it's the same for countries that haven't quite managed to foster it or that they actually need to keep on renewing it uh for citizens particularly um it's most elite bargains are sustained through legitimacy the power of citizens is to expect legitimacy one way or another and it doesn't necessarily you know if you were living in a democratic country you can do it through these processes. If you're living in China, you there will be also process to some extent that you can let it be known. You know, um, you see it in China, for example, around environmental issues and so on. Weibo can be quite effective. It's it's basically you know legitimacy is a, is, a, is a key part of a part of it and expecting it. At the same time, I think. Um, there is something, and allow me to say a few things on Bangladesh, what I find, you know, it's a, a country with a massive young population. Um, and one initiative I came across, which I, I really love, and it's so impressive. And it's, okay, it's someone I know um, who uh, is actually, he's a student of mine, but it's nothing to do because he's a student of mine and doing it. It's before he, he became a student, he was already doing this with a number of friends in Bangladesh, they had set up what they call the Youth Policy Forum. Okay, and so basically now they have tens of thousands of members. Okay, it's quite remarkable actually, and they're very conscious to say, you know, who in Bangladesh can afford to take a bus or a rickshaw to come to a meeting in a hotel? Of course, they are middle class people. They are also elite players, and in fact. Many of the ones who organized it are the children of the elite, essentially. And they try to debate how Bangladesh could go, what they call in doing industrial upgrading, for example. How can they go to, to newer forms of, of business and the whole thing? And of course, these are the kids that will, may well run it later on and all the kind of things like that. They are the, also the ones that will be the civil servants, the educated ones. And they... They've organized themselves and they do these events. And I remember being asked to talk at one of them. And it's just a convening power because if it's the children of the elite, uh, the, the convening power is such that several MPs and including the economic advisor of the president turned up. So they actually managed to do things. But it's just, uh, you know, it's something they do. Okay, they are, they are citizens. Okay, an ordinary person in Bangladesh can still vote. But also people like that, young people who have the ability, the opportunity, they can actually organize themselves. And they, I think they will be crucial ones to see, can they actually keep on renewing this, this elite bargain? Um, I do put quite a lot of power in the hands of the elites. 
it's because they are the elites. They can block everything. <laughs> they can block it. And, you know, people say, oh, where do the people fit into it? You know, having worked uh, in the UK in, in, in government, in, in, in the, the office of a G7 foreign secretary, you know, my, my illusions of everybody is equal in society have also been, been a bit dashed. You know, there are certain people who can pick up the phone and influence more than other people. And so there is something there. So, but anything that can put, put pressure on, on their legitimacy and that they actually have to take some of the actions and not block progress, I think is in this respect uh, positive. I give you an example from an NGO now. So I see, I've seen this in, you know, in, 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 in Ghana, in Kenya. It's quite interesting. Of course, it's a democracy. It's a, maybe not the best functioning one, but it's a decent, decently functioning democracy. Um, ordinary people can be working with civil society organizations, with NGOs, and they seem to perform a really useful role in basic transparency initiatives. So it's, again, expecting to, the legitimacy of the MPs they elected, doing that little bit of extra work of reporting whether they're fulfilling their promises and are working with it and so on. So anyway, so these are the kind of things that that uh, that that uh, people can do within, you know, and you said it to start with, you know, they can join political parties, they can do things, but within each society, looking for ways of how do we most effectively keep on putting the pressure uh, so that, that actually, you know, development is central enough in the objective function of those people who actually have the power and try to shape it as much as you can in, in that direction, you know. And what is my advice in Burkina Faso? If you get a coup, well, be careful, I would say. Be very careful. And that's the kind of sad thing. It's, again, a little bit of, you know, problem with the autocracies, you know, if you... You know, you can't pick your leaders. You know, occasionally they do very well and they may do better than democracies, but, but we need to find ways of, 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 of doing things. By the way, allow me to say one other thing that you can really get at elites. And, and, and I'm not sure citizens can, can do that much, but, but I'm actually quite optimistic about it. You know, politics, however autocratic it is, costs a lot of money. Politics is really expensive. Capture democracies are expensive. Most normal democracies are expensive, but autocracies they also need to keep on paying off all the kind of uh, groups and people. So illicit finance is a big part of the story here. These political equilibrium in countries has a lot to do with illicit finance. Now, citizens in the world can actually do something here, which is realize that we are getting slowly to a moment where the total lack of inaction about these things related to most messy governments and messy political systems and messy countries, say, in Africa, we are that excuse that, uh, yeah, it's very hard to do, fall drops away, and it's all to do with Ukraine. And there's actually a real thing is that everywhere in every government in the West, you've got now well-staffed offices that have actually learned to troll through all the records. Yes, including in your own tax havens, but 
I better have a better sense what sits in Dubai and in Singapore than they used to because they're checking for Russians. They've learned better how to do it. So all these kind of excuses, oh, it's really hard, we can't do it, have a lot to do with an unwillingness, of course, of many, including G7 countries, to really act on this because our financial sectors depend in all the service provision, the lawyers, the accountants that give all the services to all these people, and let alone our banks and our financial systems. So actually, we've learned a lot and the, the laws have been tightened. The experience is now much stronger. And I actually see, you know, maybe, maybe it could be in as powerful a force in some of these very fragile places as globalization has been in an earlier phase. Because actually, suddenly we can start checking it properly and we find a way of doing it. I noticed this actually already in a really... Um, something that gave me a lot of pleasure is that President Tinubu in Nigeria was apparently complaining that he couldn't find any economic advisors, typically coming out of the elite financial sector, the players, and, and not just the, the cleanest ones, but the ones that are connected to the politics and so on. He couldn't get them involved because as soon as they would become advisors, they would be politically exposed people or persons, politically exposed persons. And these days, being a politically exposed person actually begins to mean something because we've learned how to do it. These officers are, are staffed. And apparently, a lot of people refuse to work in, uh, as advisors to his government, as technical people who do, you know, the people that do all the work in the end, simply because they didn't want to become that. And say, oh, that's actually some of the best news I've heard from Nigeria from recent times. Because it is the beginning of... Can we unravel getting setting the incentives differently? And this is a bit like, you know, what maybe we should all pay a bit more attention to what is possible now now around in the space of illicit finance and all the things that our governments now diligently do relative to Russia, that they actually do it now relative to all these places. And then one day we'll start looking into what happens in Dubai and Singapore, and then I'll be totally happy. That is a wonderful segue into uh, uh, this, what we what we were thinking about talking about next, which is external actors, because this really gives external actors in this case, you know, Western countries or Eastern countries for that matter as well, a whole new lever, uh, which uh, which can be applied probably with technology in a quite a distributed way um, as well. Um, but uh, perhaps uh, we go back to also Paul's idea of uh, of rebel groups that he mentioned before. Um, and uh, so, so you have these elites in the in, in developing countries. Um, uh, how and, and and sort of how should they be taking into account, or how should we be thinking about external actors, whether neighboring states or rebel groups, uh, in the emergence of uh, a development bargain? Uh, in particular, when those neighboring states or rebel groups have the capacity to reinforce the incentives that pull away from the creation of, of those types of development bargains? So, look, I, I'm not giving you a, a complete answer because, of course, the presence of rebel groups, they have the power to disrupt, you know, any any form of an equilibrium that could be stable can be made more unstable. Um, you know, you're creating creating all kinds of factors. And um, and it's not for nothing that, you know, whether, whether you look at definitions of a state, whether it's in Douglas North or... Uh, states as a solution to the problem of violence or Max Weber, the original idea, it always comes back to it. You know, how do we limit 
this 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 presence of of groups that 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 create uh, disrupt the peace, create forms of instability, and so on. But um, so 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 I'm going to be slightly the politician here and not fully answering your question because I don't have a good answer. But actually talk about something that's quite closely related to it. And and this is where where concepts of an elite bargain actually quite helpful to to lower your expectations. Yeah? So let's take a country there's all these rebel groups active. Okay, and so so I got very tired of uh, all these um, uh, actions that we talk about peace building activities and so on. Not that they bad things to do, but they really I mean say tired intellectually tired or or more or emotionally tired because you know. It's so hard to do these things, you know, and, and, and the idea you do it from below and from working with people and creating, creating consensual things. So it's a bit like, you know, actively trying to forge an elite bargain that looks really good and from below from the people. It's really hard. And it makes me think often of, 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 of going back to, you know, is Douglas North, uh, definition of a state, a solution of problem of violence through the emergence of a dominant coalition. Okay, so you need to have some form of coalition. But it's really helpful to think about, you know, the idea of peace here, you know, the idea of, 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 of lack of conflict in this context of elite bargain. And I and one thing I, I like to say, and in fact, I, I had to do a briefing of the Secretary General of the United Nations and, and his management team, and I rather enjoyed because it was about fragile states and so on. And I was trying to get this idea across that we have to start being become willing to say that peace is ugly, you know, that peace, you know, it's messy, it's ugly. You know, most peace deals, if we want them to stick, just recognize that they will be ugly. Now, the problem, of course, it means sometimes you get a peace deal that is ugly and then it's very hard to ever make them look like Sweden. You know, it becomes very hard to make this kind of beautiful SDG-driven, beautiful thing. And of course, in the UN, there's all this idea we do these peace negotiations and the outcome is suddenly we get this perfect state uh, emerging. You know, this is how I use the word Sweden here. You know, this perfect state, equal state, all the SDGs are being pursued diligently and that's the peace deal. And just actually saying, you know, we should just be willing to recognize that if we want a peace deal to be stable, it has to be ugly. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Also, of mistake that external actors made. And I'll give you two, which is Myanmar and, and Sudan. Both cases are very similar to me. So let's take Myanmar first. So Myanmar, you got a transition from the military regime. It's not quite conflict, but it's close to it. There was a lot of violence in the, in the periphery happening as well. Um, and, and everybody started being the big supporter of Aung San Suu Kyi rightly so uh, to, to some extent as really wanting to move for, for a democracy and so on. And then pressure at some point, think of it within the military, um, there was clearly enough of the reformists got enough power to allow the transition to happen. And so you got a transitional government. Can't remember the dates exactly now. But anyway, you had the transitional government before the elections were going to take place. And the transitional government... I remember meeting some of these military people. They were actually doing some rather 
reasonable reasonable things. You know, I was going to use decent, but you know, military governments, decency, that's not quite the word, but, but they do some reasonable economic policy and developmental things. And they were clearly prepared for a transition, you know, to get ready and then invite investment in and, and, and having a bit of a broader anti-poverty policy and so on. Anyway, um, the elections come out and there is this massive majority or this overall majority for Aung San Suu Kyi. She sweeps to power. And then everybody says, okay, from now on, we're going to just strengthen the democracy. And we're going to do this. And so we have these endless programs and whatever and, and so on happening and say, well, you know, but it's strange. That transitional deal always was unstable because, you know, one group took power away from, 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 from the other ones. And of course, it was a very powerful group. This was not yet a, a fully formed dominant coalition. You know, and they were trying to do to parliament, putting the military under control, putting the businesses controlled by the military under their control. Of course, no wonder that at some point, um, you know, the military interests were, uh, were being questioned, especially the economic interests, and they took power again. Why I'm actually saying this was really strange, because the obvious thing that really was not done, which is essentially making this a proper political and an economic deal, and basically getting the different forces properly uh, brought together. And so an economic deal means it's a deal about the rents. It's a deal about how much they still can control and what they couldn't control. And this whole idea that suddenly a parliamentary action would suddenly remove that all, it wasn't there. And so it's really interesting that that actually none of us were trying to say, look, we want to make this stable. It has to be a deal about the economy therefore as well. And the military controlled, or the cronies linked to the military were controlling the economy. It had to be there. You know, that's the that's the essence of the idea of, of, of also of the elite bargain. It's about an economic deal and also a political deal. It's not just politics. It has to be about who has, who controls the resources and all the things doing it. No wonder it happened. It's actually quite interesting. I won't name the name, but some someone who used to be a senior advisor to answer to she um, more or less said, look, that was our biggest mistake. We just never brought, especially these reformists in the army, in our camp, form a coalition with that bit of the army. Yes, with some compromise, being ugly, but that's probably what you should do. Fast forward to, to Sudan. We get rid of uh, al-Bashir. It's, it's, it's wonderful, the, the democratic uh, kind of the... the, the in fact, there used to be there used to be the street and the suits. Uh, the suits were the old bureaucrats and the old political people that became the government, and then the street was there exercising the power. But there was never a deal made with the army who controlled, similar to Myanmar, sixty percent of the economy. No wonder that at some point, once once debt relief was done, you know, or they say, well, you know. Now they're beginning to talk about taking control of all our assets. Oh, no, we just take power again. And so it's in that sense, you know, peace deals or transitional deals in these fragile places, they will look ugly. They are rent-sharing deals. And we just have to be willing to accept that there is a certain ugliness about it. Maybe the final one quickly is South Sudan. Uh, the, the, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement 2005, then the Independence and, and, and 2011. You know, um, you know, in the end, the all the conflict was also or became really so salient 
when actually it was clear it was also about the resources and, and indeed the, the the resources are always there you know the we were so obsessed though with the deal to be made between Sudan and South Sudan and as we later on also discovered between the different parts in the in the in South Sudanese uh, in, in in the South Sudanese groups the two the, the two the two rebel movements that were in principle together but never quite um that that we were willing to do a peace deal with lots of brown envelopes in fact it's well known that actually a lot of money exchanged hand during the peace negotiations between some of the protagonists uh, apparently brown envelopes delivered to hotel rooms um and um and so you you get this kind of deal that is based on some kind of rent sharing stuff but but deeply fragile between the two groups uh, between Salvakir and um what's his name again um Rik Rik Machar Rik Machar yes Rik Machar and uh, Salvakir you know that that the deal between the two of them was always always a rent sharing deal and it had to be ugly because you know every time we've seen that every time the, the oil price collapses they start fighting again because the rents are not good enough uh, but then when the prices are high anyway these peace deals these fragile things are ugly so remember as outsiders deal with this my bottle and come back here on to, to your, your, your question at the outside as well. Just do it with our eyes wide open, you know, just naively not saying, oh, democratic transition here or the end of a, of a regime and are suddenly expecting stability. You know, peace will and, and will look ugly if we want stability. We'll better think not just about some kind of political piece of paper and some political process, but actually really think of who are these powerful groups and who has the power to destabilize these places and actually just to be willing to do it. Now, it's ugly. OK, it's ugly and I don't like it. OK, I'm not going to say let's do a deal with rebel groups, uh, whichever rebel group there is and whatever, but just recognize that these peace deals for them to stick will be there. And then the big job becomes how do we begin to structure them in some sort of way that actually they are a little bit more rule-based, a little bit more transparent, and a little bit more firmer? But at first, most peace deals will be ugly, and, 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 and we should just be willing to, to recognize this and uh, that the economic and the rent-sharing part of it is always as important as the kind of political positioning that, that we play. So these two groups of external actors, the international organizations, the bilateral donors, it seems that for them to accept what you've just said, they need to accept that peace is ugly, uh, that they have to institutionalize this understanding. And currently they, they are far more comfortable working with stable equilibria rather than unstable ones. So how do we institutionalize an understanding of development bargains and economic deals and these are uncomfortable truths. How do we actually put them into practice, given your experience in government? You've seen this from the inside. Right. So, look, it's, it's, it's first of all, it, it has to, the, the first principle has to be a recognition of huge diversity and huge, and, and I don't like the word use complexity, but more, you know, there's going to be a difference between Sudan and the DRC. There's going to be a difference thing, you know, in in our international organization, at least in our multilaterals, we like to 
everything is the same, you know, everywhere, everywhere UNDP will do capacity building workshops for every problem, every, everywhere the instrument set of, of, of a World Bank or an IMF may well be the same. So you want to make sure, just begin to recognize diversity. And that needs to mean also to recognize, you know, having a sharp analysis of, of these equilibria and these incentives that exist or the lack of it or unstable, the stability of them and how they, they work. So, of course, we, and but what I don't want to advocate is now we all go home and do lots of political economy analysis and we'll uh, give it to our bosses and the bosses do exactly the same. The problem really is, is how you build that in. And that's actually really at the core of it. So, so you need to really understand the nature of of the of, of of the incentives there and and so on, but how do you how do you build it in? So I think there is one thing to recognize, you know, from the idea that elite bargains some are more development than others. It also suggests we should be willing to be more selective, okay, in the way we work. And the problem is a little bit that despite we all saying we do all kind of careful analysis, but you know, alone is alone is alone. It's, it all seems to look quite similar. Okay, and so, and you give, uh, if you then go to the World Bank, who often people describe as a cooperative bank, you know, everybody, it's a bank owned by its members, so everybody also gets their share and access to their quota. You know, yes, you can't always get your money, but, but in the end, it's everybody gets it. So you can't simply say, as the World Bank, you know, maybe today we should actually place a bet, not on the DRC, but actually increase the bet we play on, on Senegal. So it's, it's, it goes against the nature of a lot of these institutional factors. Okay. So it's incidentally, um, so it's, it's, it's very striking that I think if I remember well, the, the four largest, uh, IDA loans, you know, that the World Bank gives, uh, to developing countries just before COVID, just before COVID, uh, went to Pakistan, the DRC, Nigeria, and um, I can't remember what the fourth one was, but basically another of these messy places where the elite bargains definitely were not there. So they were absolutely not selective. You know, the money went to the places, hope uh, over experience um, that actually, or maybe this time, think of Pakistan, this time the 23rd IMF program will work, even though we know 22 ones have never been completed. Okay, maybe one has ever been completed. You know, what I mean is, you know, that political equilibrium, that polit elite bargain is all, is not quite meaningful for that. So can you actually, and, and, and several of the countries that at the time were growing and actually looking quite promising, like Ghana, like Senegal, like Ethiopia, they all uh, went into the Eurobond market. So there's something there that is then rather peculiar, given that two of the three of these three have now defaulted, um, you know, um, then uh, or quasi defaulted in the Ghana case, but the, definitely with restructuring, that that you kind of get into, you know, we're not selective enough. Okay, so that's the first thing. Can we actually place the bets? But okay, it doesn't fully answer your question because how do you bring then this this understanding of the elite bargain? In, in our work? Um, well, carefully and cautiously. It, it's not beyond our abilities. You know, if you begin to understand um, what is the nature of the elite bargain, if there is a development bargain, do all you can to try to strengthen it. You know, I would say, if you say, look, it's not perfect, 
but make it really easy to actually disperse, to get access to resources, to actually do it, give it as budget support, do all these kinds of things. But and, and especially trying to strengthen the growth orientation and development orientation of these places. And 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 you know, but but give them a lot of mileage, you know, give them ownership. The other side of it would be if it's not a country with a development bargain, well, you need to be really thinking carefully about, you know, whose incentive would it be to actually maybe moving more towards one? You know, you have to be willing, and this is a controversial idea, you can only do it probably quietly and not too publicly, but quite to think about it, you know, um, how can we nudge this elite bargain more, more towards development? What can be done? Who can be strengthened? Who, who, who is it there, you know, within the polit political class that can have influence? How can they actually nudge it, you know? Um, how, how can we then look for those parts of the economy where potentially more of the supporters of that elite bargain can 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 be okay so so let's let's map this for a second into bangladesh where definitely in the 1980s without us realizing maybe consciously we we seem to have done it and i'm not sure we could have foreseen it and it's definitely a, a question that always comes back you know how do i know we have one but if you think in bangladesh the central bank somehow or another, got strengthened. I think by the IMF as well, got really strengthened. And in an environment in the 1980s where they were being a bit more market-oriented and, uh, and, and more development-oriented as well, it actually was usefully strengthened. Okay, that was definitely a, a smart thing to do. Uh, the, in fact, they are the big proponents of more market-based incentives there. But the government started doing certain things itself certain liberalizations and so on. So clearly, we were clearly quite helpful. It was not part of conditionality that they did certain things. And so they were clearly helped to do this. International aid agencies actually did something useful because remarkably in Bangladesh, government state capability, well, we know it's quite low. Governance and corruption is quite high. Health delivery and development delivery was actually very low. But uniquely almost in the developing world, they allowed an NGO to become probably as powerful as the state in certain things. At some point, two-thirds of the community health workers were supplied by BRAC, the largest NGO in the world. You know, it, it, it requires a certain smartness to react to that. And, you know, I'm not saying anyone was really particularly smart, but definitely the Australians and the Brits in their development aid, they probably have given more than a billion pounds to that one NGO over the last 20 years, more than a billion pounds, a billion and a half dollars uh, being given to one NGO. But also think of it, it takes a particular government to allow an outsider to do that. So it, it involves also a very careful understanding of that government and whether they can accept it or not, you know, which government usually would allow them to do to do this. But anyway, it all comes together is actually by understanding where a country is, what are the incentives, what can be done, and actually respond to that political economy and definitely not having this everywhere we're going to do this one thing or this one way of working, but looking for it. Does conditionality fit into it? Possibly at most in the way I kind of really like it, is when it creates 
when you have a willing ministry of finance and 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 economic ministry say can you help us tie our hands a little bit okay then you can do it you know then you can do it and then it's actually very helpful if you impose it from outside it's not owned politically so then all what they all will try to do is a bit like pakistan every time halfway through the program or oh, the balance of payments is just about getting okay again now we can just do again what we usually do and we can ignore it entirely so it 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 requires again understanding you know how you work with them how you how you have that you know that that deal that implicit understanding and 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 a deeper understanding of the incentives who are the ones that are development and, and and able to progress and so on yeah just to to maybe push a bit further on this um are you suggesting that rather than do political economy analysis in a long way in which we explain why certain groups um have been wronged in the past and we shed light on who has had access to power and who does now um and so we go back you know hundreds of years we do something instead far more targeted when we say here are the members of the government here are their advisors out of them we believe that you know a couple of them could be interested in a development bargain let's bring in illicit flows we have the data based on who will be sort of who has <laughs> i see you laughing so who has money where and we'll make a decision based on that far more uh, sort of almost intel the intelligence driven rather than simply um based on a long historical analysis of power groups and so on well look so so the first thing i i would would definitely want our eight agencies and multilateral agencies on the ground they should sit less in the bars and they should read history books a bit more deeply that would already be that would definitely something in, in the evenings they should make sure they understand the country a bit better occasionally learn the language if they could and so on so so i think it would help because it would create a little bit of context for the next thing that i say so so you know in a world where i say 50% is history 50% is agency you know make sure you understand the history by the way you know you know like a country like ethiopia where i invested so much in it is that you know the history matters so deeply to understand today's incentives so you can't deny that the incentives of today's political class in their use and abuse is there but then you know we we should do the political economy analysis also in this more pragmatic way not this kind of usual thing as i had when i sometimes had to advise ministers said oh and the minister would go our ministers would go and meet some finance minister oh is a really nice chap we had a really good conversation we should really do a bigger program with that ministry there you know and there i say it's a little bit more intelligent and a little bit more research based with most multilaterals but not that much more more you know there is usually oh well you know he's a good guy we we really can get on with it you know no it has to be really a bit more than we met this good guy who really wants to improve health so we're going to do it no it needs to be a bit more intelligent and a little bit maybe a bit more intelligence let in that sense by the way the fact that they have some money abroad in itself you know a lot of the countries have made progress in a lot of imperfections so 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 and i'll i, I come, come back to that in a moment how you not to use that information um but but you 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 do require and i think in practice a good 
um, a good overseas program, uh, a, a good development program, a good aid program, a good um, um, World Bank program, IMF program, we requires this kind of partners that you can work with, that you can trust, and so on. Of course, the trust has to be tested when I, with actions and behaviors. You know, how do I know whether someone is committed in a development bargain? It's not because they say we're going to do everything based on the SDGs or something. It has to be about tried and tested. They're trying to do things and so on. And then I would say, yes, it very much isn't about taking some bets here and there very carefully, very correctly, um, supporting, you know, if there is a, a real serious person in health minister, then a bilateral aid agency, yes, could really be working and, and see that the progress is there. And yes, you strengthen these people politically, you do that and, 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 and so on. So yes, so you, you would, would do it. But you also, you know, you still need to make sure you understand properly, do they have any incentive to do this? Or is this all just a gimmick? What is their incentive? And it comes back to it, why are they doing it is actually a good thing. And because they're good human beings, you know, I'm cynical enough these days that I don't meet that, don't meet that, that many politicians who's only, some of them do, but there's only driving factor is that. Do they see that long, longer term thinking as good for them politically and so on? Say, okay, it's worthwhile investing in that because you, 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 you want to support that. Um, yeah, and, and it, it is there, a little bit taking bets, but you need to not flip-flop all the time, you know? You take your bets a bit in the longer term, you know? You you, you don't want to... You, you want to do this steadily, never just in one person, because if it's dependent on one person alone and doing it. And then we come to a more broader, broader question. Why? How would you know that a country and the elite elites involved are actually beginning to be seriously committed to do that. Well, again, it has to be actions and behavior. You have to start seeing things that different mental models, mental models that is just to win the elections, mental models that it's only uh, because it's it's attacks their enemies or whatever it is, or it's, it's a good way to make the, the people that have financed their elections to get their money back. If it's just that, you know, you you know, you you want to make sure that you actually begin to see there's something here more dramatic. You know, it allows me to say a bit of a, a link with that Intel type of base stuff as well. Um, Lee Kuan Yew, of course, he's always praised as this great leader. I mean, he was clearly a smart operator. There's no no doubt. And uh, and it's often when you talk to Singaporean um, or people who study Singapore, or Singaporean uh, political scientists, they often refer to him as this great broker as well, which is, fits well with this kind of idea of a broker in a lead bargain. But you also should know he came from a party that had been, first of all, very interventionist, but also did politics in the usual way, which means there were people financing their elections and expecting some, some favors afterwards. Now, one of the early things that he did, unlike your typical anti-corruption efforts, he didn't put one of his enemies funders in jail or one of his or the, the opposition politicians in jail for corruption. He actually jailed one of his main funders uh, of his election. Because say, oh, this guy, that money is corrupt, and then he jailed it. Now, if there's one signal you want to give that you're going to do politics slightly differently, it's probably to start jailing the person who paid for your election victory. So, um, so and, it, and it's that. So yes, he used the intel smartly, 
you know, should we do it as outsiders? I'm a bit concerned, you know, with all that multipolarity in the world and so on. We're going to use it based on Security Council votes rather than anything else. Um, but there is an element of it. You know, we should be intelligent partners. You know, we should know who we deal with. You know, if I'm doing a business deal, I'm carefully thinking about who am I doing a deal with here. If I'm an IMF or a World Bank, you can't hide behind, oh, well, because it's the Minister of Finance, we, we have to act like that. No, you, 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 you use that information. And by the way, a smart country rep or a mission chief of the IMF or a smart country director in the World Bank, they do that. And you've seen them and you can see them doing that. In fact, what I'm more appealing for is having a slightly more systematic and structured way of thinking through these incentives and a bit more systematic way so that whenever they get a mission from London or from Washington uh, that are totally have no idea whether they landed in Azerbaijan or Armenia and wouldn't even know the difference between these two countries, um, that they actually, you know, that there is a toolkit to actually say, well, let's actually think through this and link through, think through this a bit more systematically um, and build it in, in our understanding for, for impact. Um, you know, within the sense of, and kind of maybe then the final thing here is, you know, it will not work if it's not owned by some important parts of, of, of a, within the elite, you know, doing this all, in a kind of scheming conditionality or another clever, smart little way, it won't be. Then you better don't engage. You know, I'm actually a big proponent also to sometimes saying, just say no, you know, just don't do, just don't do it. You know, there are just enough places where actually saying, look, we're making us outsiders maybe things worse, including with the best of intentions. And then just, it's not worth it because we make, we entrench elite bargains, make it worse. And, um, yeah, and end up um, being partly responsible. Yeah, as we're heading soon towards the the wrap up, you mentioned something that that I wanted to just quickly pick up on, and it's it's the the, the idea of the business deal. We've talked a lot about the economy, we've talked a lot about growth, but we haven't touched on the private sector yet. So, just you know, in 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 brief terms, as you think about the emergence and persistence of a development bargain. Where does the private sector and private sector investment, private investment fit in? Right. So, so, so first of all, in most countries in the world, it's not very helpful to talk about the private sector. Okay. Um, especially in the kind of places that I'm concerned with, you know, the more messy places and so on. There is a huge spectrum of, of business operators. There is, and, and by the way, it applies in the US, in Britain as well. There's a spectrum. There are the people who can pick up the phone and reach number 10 in London or the White House. There's the people that can be strong enough to get a special through lobbying something inserted in a, in a totally different law in the US in Congress. They're the connected businesses, the people that play the game. And it can be in all kinds of things. It can be totally legal, like lobbying can be made legal and, and have ways of doing it. It can go further as well. And, and it can be through procurement, through all the things. So there's a whole range of businesses. One of the things is, and it's, it, 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 um, I was in Pakistan actually last, last week again. And, uh, you know, and people said, you know, oh, you have to go and talk now to the private sector as well. And then they get the Karachi business community there together. And look, there's some perfectly decent people on it, but 
But given the way the incentive structure in that economy is that every business is non-tradables. You know, nobody, nobody does anything to do with trying to export. There's virtually, virtually no really, unlike neighboring India or Bangladesh, um, any, any kind of export business. So, so it's a bit like the private sector you want to talk to is just doesn't exist. And you have to be willing to accept that in most countries, the private sector you want to have to be a partner of all this, all of these elite bargain doesn't exist. So you have to do it with the connected business. You have to do it in some countries is the only way to do business is to be connected one way or another. Um, you know, and, and bend the rules and whatever. So, so, so there is something there. The private sector is a huge diverse type of, 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 of set of things, including Again, in most countries that are not growing fast, it's uh, in the developing world that are not growing fast, it's the, the, is, is the businesses that don't exist. Okay. And the same would apply like investors. Investors are a huge variety. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, some countries get the foreign investors that they deserve, you know. Um, and it's basically because, you know, they, these are the ones the elite has to deal with. Um, you know, some natural resource exp uh, um, producers are brilliant uh, FDI firms and others are awful. And so, you know, you get that whole spectrum. So so the private sector is, is not there. Now, those of them means a bit like, again, which private sector you want, you know, the one, and one that actually, you know, and, and the one that you always will want to talk to in a country that's a bit stuck are the handful of firms that try to export. You know, and um, in fact, uh, Lan Pritchett in 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 somehow in in a book deals and development, he he mentions them. He calls them the magicians. You know, despite everything that goes wrong in these places, these people are the ones that actually manage to <laughs> get 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 things exported and so on. So you want to do it, and this is a group that you want to strengthen. And it's really, you know, and I want to emphasize for two reasons. There's the pure economic thing because you know. We seem to have, um, we, we, you know, they bring in the foreign exchange. They 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 can keep on expanding their production if they manage to capture markets. You know, they're not constrained by domestic markets and all the usual economic things. It's really good for the macroeconomy as well. But actually, it's a there's an additional layer to it in the in the way we can think here about it, because once they become successful, they will become politically influential. They are a force that can reinforce polit via political economy channels that we keep on getting the incentive set right for these kind of firms. Bangladesh, it was critically important. So gradually, you know, the, initially these garment exporters, you know, more than 90% of, of exports in there is, is garments and textiles. Um, they were not important politically. Um, but once they were successful, they became politically important, first to be supported. And that meant not to overvalue exchange rate, to actually do sensible macroeconomic policies. And later on, they are the ones that entered parliament. So it's actually Bangladesh remains a very outward oriented country. Yes, there's an issue there that they capture all the industrial policy incentives, now the subsidies, and or they still only go to the governments. But there is an incentive set that is very outward oriented. And that political economy reinforcement. So it's that private sector you always will want to encourage. So definitely there. And then you want to be, you know, you want to also then find ways, setting the incentives that you can contain the connected businesses because they are not giving you the good incentives. 
And then you start thinking about, you know, early wins, you know, going back to what Paul asked you, are you going to invest in, in certain ministries and whatever, you know, it brings back this importance. If you have uh, a really good uh, procurement agency, you can at least begin to actually stop some of the worst excesses around certain things. You can same with a tax agency that is actually does a level playing field. You get it. And in fact, if we look at the countries that are reasonably successful, often they started developing pockets of excellence in these kind of ministries. And so again, it brings back, actually, you know, we're not going to do tax authorities because some kind of uh, Bessley person, big idea that taxation is the basis of the state. No, it's actually much more mundane because actually it begins to set incentives clearer and clearer uh, and, and, and straighter so that actually you're, 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 you're setting the incentives for private sector clearer. It's a level playing field. And then you start working on minimal amounts of economic governance and so on and so on. So, yeah, private sector, crucially important. And by the way, FDIs as well. And the kind of FDI that you get is so important. And so it is, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's endogenous to your elite bargain. But again, FDI can then reinforce a developmentally oriented one because their incentives are set. And so if you start looking, and it's definitely a piece of work I want to do a bit more carefully, but definitely um, in terms of examples, and you know, if I go look again, who are the investors in Sierra Leone? It was a very different class of investors that you would actually typically find even already in Kenya. Or you would find actually Uganda, who actually was very careful on, on all kinds of things, not very careful, but very careful to actually, you know, getting getting sensible natural resource, in their case, the petroleum investors in and working on it. So, you know, it's part of it. But then once you have a good one in, think of also Botswana uh, with, with some uh, decent uh, diamond exporting firms. You get a you get a uh, the, the virtuous cycle because they reputationally are dependent on it as well, and it's another virtuous cycle. So it's not about get your FDI, but be willing to be selective. Get your good FDI. You know, um, I, I it's an interesting one that I uh, heard in in South Africa at some point, where firms much more than the government initially in the kind of 2010s, the government was not at all outward oriented in the rest of Africa, but businesses were. And one of the things they did is actually reputationally trying to signal that they were good investors because they were a bit worried, you know, looking links to apartheid and so on, is to list in London as a signal, look, we're willing to get the corporate requirements from London, you could actually trust us. And so not that I would trust every business that's listed in London, but it was definitely more transparent than being listed in, 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 in Joe Burke, I think. Yeah. So, so good FDI, but not the Wagner Group. <laughs> uh, yes. So, you know, not every imported group uh, is 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 to be be desired, indeed. <laughs> so, it seems to me that countries that set up these right incentives or the right kind of private sector get a good economic policy advice, and this is sort of brings us to to the last question. You have offered and, and engaged in economic policy advice. You teach. What makes for good policy advice? And I'm thinking here of your 
September 2023 paper, which I absolutely loved. And your typology of the three types of economic advisors, the mercenaries, the politically informed economic advisors, and my favorites, politically subversive economic advisors. Can you tell us what makes for good economic policy advice and why the the politically subversive advisors might be the best kind for development? No, 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 thank you. And 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 okay, so 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 one of the things clearly that um we always need to think about when we give advice is well what do the people that we give advice to want to achieve? What are their objective? What is their objective function? Sounds very straightforward, but it definitely the first principle of being a good advisor has to understand, you know. How does the minister think? In my case, I was advising minister. What's their mental model? How do they think? How how are causalities working? And what they want to achieve in this? Okay, so so it's it's been a big part. To be honest, it's been a big part of my frustration that it took me, you know, working so many years advising ministers that I actually realized, oh my god, if I were to do it again, why didn't anyone explain to me that that's what I need to do? And and it's a key part, you know. You get get understand their objective function, and and the problem we have is that, you know, often as economists, we like to think that if we talk to a finance minister or to a prime minister or a president, that they want to grow their economies and that they want to achieve development. Now, with a lot of the conversation we have, and I'm sure when you talk about fragile countries conversations you have with lots of other people we can't take this for granted and even if they want maybe growth and development most of them first want power including in our own governments and they want to be re-elected and being re-elected in most countries you know the median voter is not necessarily, you know, I'm not, a, fortunately, I don't, I'm not a politician, I can't, I can say this, but I'm not necessarily want to have lunch with the median voter in most countries, you know, um, the views on certain things, I'm probably more liberal, um, and whatever. Okay, so, so if we give advice, not take into account of it, we do it entirely wrong, you know, if you do simply the best possible advice, assuming they have an objective function, and then um, they have other objectives. Now, and as you say, you know, there's three ways of responding to that. And the first way is, is to be the one that most civil servants fear that they have to do. You know, public servants, um, maybe working in big international organizations, you know, your vice president, your director, you know, you have to just um, be the mercenary. You know, that's what they want to achieve. And you are just a little pawn in their game. So you give advice and say, OK, what do you want to achieve? Well, I want to... I want to uh, be, be in power here for the next 20 years. Okay, this is, this is the economic advice and the political advice I give you. Um, that's, that would be the mercenary. But it can be in all kinds of things. You know, the, the mercenary is that, you know, I don't want to upset the, the oil lobby while we know fuel subsidies are quite a bad thing or whatever. So the mercenaries is often the most common thing. The, the nice thing is about that, that actually, you know, as economists, we can... Uh, and uh, any advisor, we we can do better. And the minimal amount is that what I call the politically informed advisor would say, just take as a constraint, as a limiting factor, what this person wants to achieve. 
and then give the best possible advice in terms of growth and development, in terms of you know the own objectives you have, given these constraints. So I'll give you a concrete example. This was we had to advise, you know, we had to advise. Uh, I was advising at the time my minister in, in London, and we knew that she really, um, you know, as as in most cases, uh, in for aid policy, domestic factors in our own country are often far more important. It's often totally misunderstood, but anyone ever trying to understand foreign policy just has to first understand domestic policy and uh, uh, the domestic challenges they have. Know. If you want to understand China, the US or the UK, okay. In the UK, it was austerity and they were cutting cash benefits. So the, 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 the benefits that were given to all kinds of vulnerable groups and so on, they were cutting them. And then where we are based on all the best evidence as DFID, as the part of international development, we were the champions in the world on cash transfer schemes. And we wanted to expand them and spend more and more money on it. Okay, so, and, and the people said, look, all the evidence was telling us this is a really good thing to do, you know, it's low corruption, we can do all the kind of thing. But, you know, this, but minister correctly said, well, I'm sorry, I, um, we can't do it anymore. In fact, it was one of her advisors. I can't be seen to be taking away money from, from widows in the north of England and give that cash to young, uh, young families in Bangladesh. I can't be seen to be doing this. And so clearly that was out. So, so in a way, politically informed would mean, you know, I take into account that I can't do this. There's certain things I just can't propose. And I can do certain things. I can look for maybe an alternative. And in fact, our, our best that we had we managed to convince her and say, look, don't you think people will still recognize that if it's the cheapest and the quickest way to get money to people during emergencies, conflict and so on, can we still do it? And so we got permission to at least do in emergencies, we could do it. So I call that politically informed advice. We didn't want to give it on the cash transfer because we knew it was a good idea. Most of the humanitarians loved giving there. Uh, humanitarian organizations loved giving their food aid and whatever WFP was set around it, set up around it, where we said cash is far more efficient, we'll do that. And so we allowed to do that. That was politically informed. Of course, um, we can go a step further. And this is the subversive one that you loved and I love as well. And of course, look, I'll just be very honest. I I, I wanted to, to, to think of all these days I walked around in a suit, sitting in ministerial offices, maybe deep down, you know, I know, Paul, you don't particularly like Marx, but the kind of the little rebel revolutionary was still in there. So I could at least even being a little bit of a guerrilla actions and being a bit subversive and finding ways to actually be subversive. And the way to think about it is actually fairly straightforward. It's very much in line of what we were talking about earlier, which is actually think simply about, you know, um, the political constraint, don't just take it as given, but just recognize that it will change based on changing in the economy, in my case, maybe changing the political system as well, and so on. So try to give advice that is not just the best possible given the political constraints, but that if successful, creates a bit of a virtuous cycle that actually over time, we're getting more and more of these group powerful. So if I was in Bangladesh, I would definitely have strongly been advising, you know, 
keep an eye on these export firms, you know, maybe support them a bit extra, make sure they have uh, the, the simple things. It's not just for growth. You know, politically, there were maybe well, there was not a big constraint on it. But I did know that the more I strengthened them, the more self-reinforcing the development bargain, the, the development equilibrium would be. And that's what I mean by it. It's a bit subversive because the political leader doesn't necessarily have that objective. And by the way, it could have led to the politicians losing power over time because new elites emerging. And um, But it sounded okay and it could be sold. And I say it's a little bit subversive because I made the underlying kind of political constraints endogenous. I influence them as well. So, so I wish that we, um, you know, imagine economists and other advisors to be able to be a bit subversive. By the way, when I look at sometimes some of the people that I see doing it, you know, and, and, and I'm a big admirer of some of the key advisors in Africa, of some of these key leaders. I got to know a few of these, you know, uh, Ben Ondulo in Tanzania. In the end, he was a little bit subversive. He, he, all presidents would go to him. He was a governor of central bank in Tanzania at some point as well, former World Bank official. But, but he was so smart and he could convince them to do things and he could make them see it. But he always had in mind, you know, the virtuous cycle and the strengthening of the focus on growth and development within it. And it's these people I admire so much. And yeah, they were, they were totally part of the establishment but at the same time subversive in the advice they gave. And so, yeah, these are the kind of people I deeply admire. And for our audience, we barely scratched the surface on the book. It is so rich. And I really encourage everybody to pick up a copy, listen, read it. Can you let uh, everyone know where they can find you online and the book? So... They can find me online. They can find me on Twitter at gamblingondev. It's my handle. They can find, um, you know, one of the lucky things with having a surname that historically is a spelling mistake, but that's another story, uh, that there is only one person in the world with my first and surname combined. So any email address they find anywhere on the web, including in the university, it will work. They can always reach me. And then, you know, you can buy and find the book. And I noticed increasingly in all kinds of bookshops in all kinds of countries across the world. Um, and then there is the audiobook where you don't have to bear listening to my voice, but actually someone who is professional and, and uh, will, um, will hopefully entertain you for many hours uh, with the audiobook. Thank you for tuning into F-World, the Fragility Podcast. We hope you've found our conversation interesting and inspirational. We definitely did. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about us, about FWorld, please visit our website at f-world.org and follow us on Twitter at FWorld Podcast and on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening. 